Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco Sunday Morning Worship Service Podcast. For more information or downloads of previous audio services, go to uusf.org. While you're there, check out our monthly newsletter, Weekly Flame, and much, much more. The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
Good morning, everybody. You know what they say, cold church, warm hearts. We have a little part, an earthquake valve that broke over the weekend, and so it's getting fixed on Monday. So obviously feel free to stay bundled up for service. There are beautifully knit shawls um, by member Katie Culpepper and others um, that we give and bring to people when they're sick um, or at home, and we have, they're gorgeous. You can't keep them unless you ask permission, but they are back there for borrowing, so please feel free to go back and take one and curl up and make yourself as comfortable as possible. Um, I feel like the building has been getting a lot of attention this year, and almost like it's grumbling, like another thing. Uh, so this is the other thing, which will get fixed this week. I want to welcome all of you on this first Sunday of the new year. Welcome our live stream viewers from all around the country. And I want to welcome to the chancel and to our pulpit, David Usher, a retired colleague who, as you can see in his bio, has served congregations largely in England, but also in the US for 36 years, and who dragged me in part of his international evangelism um, of what it means to be a citizen of the globe to a play on cricket this year. So his reach philosophically, his service to our movement is great, and we're lucky to have him here today, and his wife, Vale Weller. Where are you, Vale? Vale is the Director of Congregational Giving and has also preached in this pulpit. We're thrilled to have both of you here today. And Eric Hamilton, our guitarist. We hope your guitar stays in tune in the cold. And your fingers. <laughs> All things are forgiven this morning. Exactly. So welcome, everybody. It's wonderful to be together. Let's sing our opening hymn. It's number 12 in your gray hymnals life that maketh all things new. Let's rise as we're able in body and spirit and sing it together.
light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Um, and we have an additional announcement from Julia Wald, who will come up here. I'm really the right, the white rabbit from Alice in Wonderland. And as many of you know, you're all invited to the March, uh, the March Hare, the Mad Hatter Tea Party and auction, which is an important fundraiser for this church. It happens on February 1st. That would be the first day of February, from two to five. As you might tell from looking at me, you are invited to come in costume. Um, it's not hard to make a costume. You just put on something silly and there you are. Um, I want to emphasize that this is an all-church event. We hope that everyone will come from children to the elderly. If we have elderly, I think we're all very young. Um, we need your help in putting it on. Last year, we had people donate many sandwiches, baked goods, yummy things to eat, because it's a tea party. So get out your cookbook or get out your skills. Sign up at the table to bring something to eat. Uh, we want this to be not only a good fundraiser, but a fun event, which it was last year, so we can do it again. Um, I think costumes are a good idea but some people don't like to be in costume, so there's no pressure. <laughs> Even some of the children don't want to be in costume. The tickets are $25 each. Uh, the children come for $10, and let's all join in and make this a wonderful event. Thank you. the spirit of this church, and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom, and to help one another.
guest during our greeting this morning because I didn't know she was here until she introduced herself. Latanya Richardson, where are you? She is from North Carolina, and Latanya is the director of our General Assembly Planning Committee, which is a task for which you deserve many blessings and immense gratitude. It's our annual family reunion and business meeting as a denomination that runs itself by democracy, that most sacred and challenging of processes. So it's lovely to have you here. And she asked me to remind you, which I, sh I will right now, that registration is open. It's gonna be in Providence, Rhode Island this year. So please consider coming. And it's so great to have you with us. So since July, when we began our witness to the children that were being separated from their families and the people who were in detention camps on our border and around the country, um, we have also been engaging in a shared ritual here in service. And we will enter into that time of ritual remembrance and commitment and recommitment, and then a time for shared prayer and meditation. So I invite you to join me in both. Recognizing that there is human suffering all over this world in the course of natural and human catastrophes. We ring our gong today in honor of one such place of suffering and as a reminder of the obligation to know what is being done in our name as a nation and the call to protect the vulnerable. We ring our gong then in honor of the seven children who have lost their lives this year in federal custody in detention camps. And we let its ringing symbolically stand also for those adults who have lost their lives too in these camps and for the 70,000 adults and 11,000 children still held in detention. This week, too, though, we ring our gong once that our nation may not be drawn into war. We ring our gong that peace may prevail in the new year wherever and whenever possible. So keeping all those we have named and their loved ones and this hope for the year in our thoughts and prayers. We will ring our gong eight times. And this coming week, may we each ease the tide of human suffering, howsoever we can.
I invite us now into a time of shared prayer and meditation. Spirit of life, spirit of love, spirit of newness that springs from winter places and rebirth from ashes and renewal from fallow or forgotten places. We give thanks for the year just past, for the decade just released into the annals of our own or our shared history. And this year, just five days young. This decade already defining itself with each action and inaction. Standing on the cusp, looking out over the landscape yet unexplored, imagined, seen only in outline and the shadows of possibility. May we step forward with resolve and high intention. May we hold what we wish for as what we live into, often as if it were so, though it will not be until enough of us live into it that way. May we choose boldly Love with abandon. Tend to the vulnerable, risking connection to our own fear of that same vulnerability. Speak for the voiceless, confirming in the very doing of that that we live in a world that might someday speak for us. Make curb cuts of all kinds for people the world has not yet seen the way to open the way for, that all might travel easy, as easily as we wish to, and hope for one another. And may the boundaries between us false and imagined as they always are, fall away to the flesh and blood unity of human beings bound on some small spinning planet whose only hope is that we together forge our way. May love and unity be our in-breath and our exhale.
And now let's make space for our own hearts' whisperings on this cusp of new beginnings. In a silence we make sacred by the holding of it together. chaplaincy, I find myself discussing a certain question frequently. It usually comes about when I am with someone who is seeking or struggling, maybe dealing with illness or disability, maybe facing end of life and the natural fears that go with it. I'm inquiring about any spiritual practice or belief. Do you believe in God, I might ask? The response I get most often is something like, no. Then, well, it depends on what you mean by God. To which I respond, define God any way you like. What do you believe always comes back. I tell them I believe there is some form of consciousness that could be thought of as God an all-encompassing field of which we are part. We affect it 
and it affects us. I believe we are a drop in this ocean of God consciousness, and when we die, we return to it fully. I believe that it is our separation from the awareness of being part of that ocean that causes suffering. I feel like they are comforted by my idea of an accepting non-judgmental God, but still wonder why I believe in God at all. Why is humanism not enough for me? It is not enough, I say, because for me, worldliness is not enough. Analysis and facts are just not enough to explain the love I feel, the flow and power and sense of personal connection. Worldly analysis is a fine practice for understanding worldly problems, but it is about reducing what we see to the understandable. Life and love and consciousness, meanwhile, are about openness and bigness. Religion, for me, requires a space large enough, open enough, loving enough, inquisitive enough, with room for what might be what we feel and hope for and suffer and struggle through and question. Spiritual pursuit, pursuit of union with God in any form is a journey. Religion is when someone has walked that journey before you and written about it. They've written a guidebook, but the guidebook is not the journey. We might pick up the guidebook and take it with us on our journey. And if we see things in it that are wrong, that they have changed or were never correct or were embellished in one direction or another by the writer for whatever reason, we might question or discard the entire guidebook or all guidebooks or perhaps question there even is a journey or anything to journey about but I believe in the journey. And while I respect the guidebooks and the insightful but flawed human beings who created them, they're only like us, thoughtful, questioning, unsure people who have walked and explored the path as we are walking and exploring it. I read their ideas and consider them. I consider where they are insightful and I am not, and where I am insightful and they are not, or in a different way. I consider their lives and journeys and times and situations and mine. I consider it all, but I walk and live my own journey, a journey of listening to subtle yet powerful guidance.
When I was the uh, minister in New England, I belonged to a minister's study group called the Greenfield Group. 30 of us ministers would gather twice a year for a convocation on a different subject. One of our subjects one year was God. And we were each asked in advance to write a one-page reflection on what we meant when we said God. I want to share with you what our colleague Bruce Marshall wrote. God is what gives us life. That's what I mean when I say God, the spirit or force or energy that gives us life. I mean this not in the narrow scientific sense. God is not a chemical process that makes life possible. My grounding, rather, is in experience. It is in the experience of being given life, new life, that I find God. I find God most reliably in relationship. This may be relationship with other people. The connections of friendship give me life, as do occasions when something important is shared between me and another person. I am renewed, given spirit for living. This may be relationship with my deepest self. In the emptiness of quiet or in the environment of safety provided by a person that I trust, I find the me that exists below the layers that have accumulated over the years. When I find that self that exists within, I am given life. This may be relationship with the earth, with the world, with the swirl of life all around me. I am given life as I explore a mountain trail, as I work with others toward making ours a better community, as I enter the excitement of a good Sunday at church. There is life all around me, and when I am in relationship with that, I am renewed, I find God. This may be relationship with the mystery that seems to me at the center of existence. Sometimes I catch glimpses of that, an image that tells me something of what is eternal and unending in existence, an unexpected rush of emotion the experience of being drawn towards something or someone even though I don't understand why or where it will lead. In the context of mystery, the voice of God speaks and I am given new life. God, the force that gives us life, is, does not necessarily follow the rules, the guidelines, the standards we humans so painstakingly create. The voice of God is surprising, insistent, and takes us in directions we would not otherwise choose. We plead with Moses, why now? Why me? But the question is before us, will I choose what gives me life, given the uncertainties and dangers that exposes me to, or 
will I settle? Whenever I find myself at that question, will I choose life, then I know I have encountered God. As uh, Vanessa mentioned in her kind welcome and introduction, I uh, took her to see a play called Test Match about cricket. And the fact that she invited me to participate in this service after we saw that play, <laughs> I take as a sign that she has forgiven me. <laughs> I want to ask uh, you to sing a song. It's a very simple song. The words are very easy for you to remember. They are, over my head, I hear music in the air. Over my head, I hear music in the air. Over my head, I hear music in the air. There must be a God somewhere. Now, I know some of you are going to want to sing There Might Be a God Somewhere. <laughs> and some of you are going to want to sing 
There is definitely not a God, there are only scientifically explainable natural phenomena somewhere. But the words are, there must be a God somewhere. It is, after all, only a song, not a theological statement of belief. More than that, I'm going to ask you to stand and sing this song, and in good style, you have to do this. <laughs> and when we get to there must, there's a clap between the must be a god somewhere. And Shannon. Yeah, she's our ringer. Is yeah, very we'll, kind. We'll figure it out. Do you know this yeah. song, Shannon? I don't. Oh dear. You don't know this song? So the tune, oh, the tune wow. roughly is over, over my head. I hear music in the air. Over my head. This is only a practice. I hear music in the air. Over my head. I hear music in the air. There must be a God somewhere. Oh, it's a great hymn, and that's totally off key, but anyway, well, <laughs> I just have to give it its due. I just have to give it its due. Then I All suggest right. you follow Shannon, <laughs> and you uh, have to smile and look yeah, as if you're enjoying uh, this, and it's not causing you pain. If there are choir singers who know this, yeah, come on down. Uh, over my head, I hear music in the air. Over my head, I hear music in the air. Over my head, I hear music in the air. There must be a God somewhere. Are we going uh, on? That's it. Um. <laughs> You're all very good sports, thank you. I want to tell you about a conversation I had some while ago while I was still in England. It's a conversation which has been repeated many times throughout my uh, time as a minister. She was, the woman I was in conversation with was an active member of her local Church of England congregation, and she was quizzing me about Unitarianism. In the UK, it's only Unitarianism. Universalism never took root there. Anyway, she was asking me the usual questions. Who are we? Where do we come from? What are we all about? The usual stuff. You know, sometimes I really think life would be a lot easier if I was just a Methodist or an accountant or anything that would be instant conversation killers. But no, you're a Unitarian. Oh, what's that? And so you have to try to explain to people, most of them kindly, well-meaning folk, that what is important to us, 
What binds us together is not what we believe in common, but what we love and give our hearts to in common. So there I was trying to explain all of this as best I could to this good, intelligent person when there was a sudden look of kind of almost horror on her face when she asked the inevitable big question. But you do believe in God, don't you? You know, I've been a Unitarian all of my years, a minister for the past 409 of them. <laughs> I have letters after my name showing that I've studied theology and so I'm probably not entirely ignorant on the subject. And yet, still, I'm never sure how to answer that question. Frankly, I'm often not even sure what the question means. Do I believe in God? Do I believe in God? The question is asked as if yes or no are the only alternatives. As if my answer would put me into one camp or the other. As if were my answer yes, well then it's okay that I'm in church. Were my answer no, somehow I'm an imposter. But I don't know what the question means. Especially I don't know what it means when I'm asked by the sort of person who has not darkened a church's door for ages but who, for reasons best known to themselves, somehow wants to justify themselves, often with a statement like, well, you know, of course I believe in God, but, you know, I don't need to go to church. You know, I worship my God in my own way. Oh, which may, might that be? I privately wonder to myself, is it in bed with a coffee and the Sunday papers? Is it watching the game? Is it at the mall or some other cathedral of consumerism? And if I'm feeling mischievous, I might reply, oh, that's interesting. You believe in God, but don't go to church. I go to church, but don't believe in God. <laughs> so let's try to unpack it a little. Do I believe in God? Does the question mean, do I believe that there is a being which exists in some separate time-space reality who is God, like Zeus on Mount Olympus? And from that separate time-space reality, this God observes the world, responds to it, makes things happen, once decided that things had got into such a mess that he sent his son, where that son came from is a puzzle we shall leave aside for now, but sent this son to earth to sort things out in a heroic and sacrificial way. Do I believe that such a being, that there is such a being that exists. No, I don't.
I understand that that is the God that some people do believe exists, but I don't. I also understand why and how such a belief came into being in a pre-scientific age. Certainly made sense in a pre-scientific age when God or gods were in charge of everything and made sense of everything otherwise beyond our human comprehension. The God of modern thought does not live on Mount Olympus as did Zeus, but in the sky. Yet no amount of air travel or space exploration has been able to locate exactly where. I also understand that it's not just about scientific explanation or lack of, it's also about a sense of control. When we feel utterly that we are not in charge, there are, we are prey and vulnerable to forces beyond our control, God is a way of expressing the sense that at least there is something, someone, some being that does have control. You know, 30 plus years ago when I was in my first ministry, I set myself a project for Lent. I set myself the task of reading the book, Does God Exist? by the Swiss theologian Hans Kung. This is a 600-page doorstopper of a book. It's pretty dense, but it was readable. And in it, Kung, himself a Catholic, but barely clinging on by his fingernails to the Catholic Church without being kicked out for his heretical views, Kung examines the history of God, all of the arguments about God's existence, the ontological, the theological, the cosmological, and other such fancy multisyllabic words. And finally, Kung comes to the conclusion it makes absolutely no sense to talk about God existing. Why? Because the term existence can be used only with reference to something that is real, something in time and space. This pulpit exists, but love does not exist, says Kung. Beauty does not exist, truth does not exist, nor goodness. They are concepts which we experience in life, but they do not exist. The reality is our experience, not that which we experience. And neither does God exist, says Kung, unless you warp the meaning of the term existing to such an extent that it ceases to be meaningful. You know, I read that book, I did get through it in, within Lent, and it made me admire Hans Kung enormously. Nothing is more certain to make me admire somebody else's intelligence than that they should agree with me. So do I believe that there is a being called God, that God 
exists. No, I don't. I'm not even agnostic about it. I don't even want to place an each-way bet on it. I'm willing to say with absolute and categorical assurance there is no God, and I don't care who knows it. But I am not an atheist. I don't like the word atheist. I don't want to be called an atheist because, you see, when asked, do you believe in God, the short answer is no. See above. But the longer and more interesting and so much more important answer is yes. Because believing in God is not a rational thing. It's not about believing that something is the case, an intellectual proposition which is verifiably true. Do I believe that the sun will rise in the east tomorrow morning? Yes, I do. If I get up early enough tomorrow morning, I'll be able to see whether that belief has been verified. There are other beliefs which are not verifiable in the same way, but are matters of personal judgment, prejudice. I might have an opinion about something. You might have an opinion different from mine about that same issue. Who is right? Who can say? There might be arguments in both camps. But God is not like that. God is not an either-or. We can never know for sure whether or not God exists. And in any case, who cares if such a God exists? I don't, but I do believe in God with all my being. Given the season that we have just been through, I want to conduct a quick straw poll here. Hands up, those of you who believe in Santa Claus. Come on, don't be shy. The thing is, I do. Now, do I believe that there is a jolly fat man in a red suit sporting a fluffy white beard who's now resting back at the North Pole, but who every Christmas Eve kisses Mrs. Claus goodbye at their cozy home, boards his sleigh with eight reindeer, whizzes around the world, going down every chimney, snacking on cookies and milk in every household, leaving not only presents under the tree for those children who have been well-behaved during the year, but also has time to write little appreciative notes for the hospitality. Well, actually, no, I don't. I do remember the awful Christmas when I learned that awful truth, but I was 43 years old at the time. <laughs> but do I believe in Santa Claus? You bet your boots. Am I away with the fairies? Do I observe, do I deserve the dripping contempt of the likes of Dawkins and other strident atheists, atheists for my infantile naivete? Perhaps. But perhaps you know about this letter 
written by a mother to her questioning daughter. No, this is not Dear Virginia. This is Dear Lucy. Dear Lucy, thank you for your letter. You asked a very good question. Are you Santa? I know you've wanted the answer to this question for a long time, and I've had to give it careful thought to know just what to say. The answer is, no, I'm not Santa. There is no one Santa. I am the person who fills your stockings with presents, though. I also choose and wrap the presents under the tree the same way my mum did for me and the same way her mum did for her. And yes, Dad does help too. I imagine you will someday do this for your children. And I know you will love seeing them run down the Christmas magic stairs on Christmas morning. You will love seeing them sit under the tree, their small faces lit with Christmas lights. This won't make you Santa, though. Santa is bigger than any person and his work has gone on longer than any of us have lived. What he does is simple, but it is powerful. He teaches children how to have belief in something you can't see or touch. It's a big job. It's an important job. Throughout your life, you will need this capacity to believe in yourself, in your friends, in your talents, in your family. You'll also need to believe in things you can't measure or even hold in your hand. Here, I'm talking about love, that great power that will light your life from the inside out, even during the darkest, coldest moments. Santa is a teacher, and I've been his student, and now you know the secret of how he gets down all those chimneys on Christmas Eve. He has help from all the people whose hearts he's filled with joy. With full hearts, people like Daddy and me take our turns helping Santa do a job that would otherwise be impossible. So no, I'm not Santa. Santa is love and magic and hope and happiness. And I'm on his team. And now you are too. Here I am, I'm 67 years old and I believe in Santa. That Santa. I want to be on that Santa's team. Some people say you shouldn't encourage children to believe in Santa. It's a lie, these people say, and when they find out you've been lying to them, well, they'll just never trust you again. Well, you know, the best things I know and experience in this world are not facts. They're not hard, verifiable truths. They're not things that exist. The best things I know and experience in this world can't be pinned down and analyzed, put under a microscope, given neat definitions. The best things in life are beyond being proven like a mathematical formula. 
The best things I know and experience are about wonder and awe and reverence, mystery, love. I want to be in a world infused with miracle and wonder. I want to be in a world in which story and legend are how we convey one generation to the next what is most important. Was I lying to my children when I helped them put out the cookies and milk on the mantelpiece? Was I lying to them as I wrote them a note of thanks in a disguised hand, scattered the half-eaten carrots on the snow by the front door? Or was I teaching them that a sense of awe is a most precious gift, which we adults lose to our peril, and that it's something that we are agents of, we are messengers of, we are angels of. I want to tell you a brief story that happened early on in my first ministry. It was in a small town in the northwest of England, and I was told about a woman who was in a nursing home near death. She'd only ever been peripheral to the life of the congregation, but I was asked if I would go and visit her. So I did, and I confess that the, it was a chore, and the main reason I went to visit her was that I could, so that I could tell people that I had been to visit her. I, it was a cold, raw February day. I rode my bicycle to the hospital and uh, went from the cold February outside weather into this overheated, stuffy ward. The inevitable happened. I immediately started to fall asleep. This woman was barely uh, conscious, barely aware of my presence. And the two thoughts going through my mind were, how can I keep myself awake in this overstuffed room? How long do I have to stay before it's okay before I leave? I tell you that because I want to assure you I was not being a very good pastoral presence. I was not dis dispensing with pastoral bromides and platitudes from the great fund of such things that I had at my fingertips. When I decided it was finally time for me and okay for me to leave, I made to leave and she grasped my hand, looked at me and said, when you are with me, I feel the presence of God. Let me repeat how unpresent I had actually been to make the larger point that we are the messengers of that which is beyond our ability to explain or define. We Unitarian Universalists, we have this broad spectrum of theological belief from sort of highly rational humanism to the ultra-woo-woo, <laughs> from progressive Christianity 
to drawing on whatever faith tradition might inspire us. But whatever our intellectual framework might be, I put it to you that we are agents, angels, and messengers of that which is beyond our comprehension to know and to name. So I believe in God. I believe in all that that simple three-letter word evokes and connotes. It's about what we give our hearts to, not what we give intellectual assent to in our minds. I believe in that which transcends the littleness of my own fleeting life. I believe in the connection that I experience with all that is that the, the word God is a poetic but ever inadequate shorthand way of expressing. I believe in God not as a separate being out there, but because I want the divine, the mysterious, the wonderful to be an intrinsic part of what it means for me and you to be human. I want to be on God's team. Why? Because it makes my life worth the living. Because though I am certainly mortal, it makes me part of that which is eternal. Because though I am finite, it connects me to the infinite. Because though I see a world broken and bruised, it reassures me with the constant vision of what might yet be. Because though I am tempted and seduced by all of life's distractions, because it's so easy for me to fall short of my own best aspirations, it aligns me in a true direction as a magnet aligns iron filings. Do I believe that God exists? No, I don't. Do you? Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. <laughs> but do I believe in God and all that God means in this marvelous, magical, mysterious world as it is and as it yet might be? Oh, yes, I certainly do. I hope you do too. Amen.
invite you to remain standing and to reach out to those around you and to make contact in whichever way is comfortable for you. And so the courage of the early morning's dawning and the strength of the eternal hills and the peace of the evening's ending and the love of all that is good and true, beautiful and holy be in our hearts and govern our lives this day and all days. So may it be. Amen.
Thanks for listening to this podcast of the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco Sunday morning worship service. For more information or downloads of previous audio services, go to uusf.org. While you're there, check out our monthly newsletter, Weekly Flame, and much, much more.